Before the COVID pandemic, only one in three third graders in Illinois could read at grade level. As of 2022, that number has dropped even further to one in four. To address this literacy gap, the Illinois State Board of Education says there needs to be a serious overhaul of the way that reading instruction is done in schools. So here to tell us more about what the changes could look like and how legislators are looking to hold the school board accountable is, of course, WBEZ editor Cassie Walker-Burke. Welcome back, Cassie. Thanks for having me. So I want you to start by setting the stage for us just a little bit. Why is this push for an overhaul? Why is it happening now? It's really interesting that it's happening now, actually, because the research is not new at all. There was a congressional panel, a U.S. congressional panel on this topic in the year 2000. So that was, what, 23 years ago? But there's been a huge gap in seeing it actually trickled over to schools into the education establishment. I think a few things have happened. I think that advocacy groups have become I'm more equipped with the the knowledge, and I think they've 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 come up with better ways to talk about it because mm-hmm. a lot of this can get really jargony and kind of hard to follow, especially for parents. There is the COVID effect, so we had a pandemic that not only exacerbated these gaps that we see in learning, particularly for Black and Brown children, but COVID also freed up a lot of federal money. And districts found they didn't want to invest in staff because they'd be on the hook for that for years and years and years to come. So some districts used that money to invest in curriculum, mm. and so there were curriculum purchases, there were resources that were freed up because we know as a country we underinvest in public education. Mm-hmm. So districts didn't have the money to spend on this stuff. I think you're also seeing culturally, we have there's a new podcast, A Sold a Story, which is an, a national podcast from APM that's come out. There's okay. a new documentary film. And you have groups like the NAACP that are taking on this issue and saying, this is actually the civil rights issue of our time. Mm. Well, the, the science of reading movement, as it's been called, it's really picked up some steam due to that podcast, as you mentioned. But uh, dig into why the podcast has really touched a nerve here. I think the podcast has touched a nerve here, for starters, because it it talks about a curriculum that is used here. And it talks about, I think, the way that educational inertia, so that's doing things the way that we've always done them. I think, you know, for, for schools and for districts, just being so inundated with all the things they have to handle. When a curriculum company comes to you and says, like, we're going to handle your teacher training. We're going to provide all of these books for you. We're going to do all of these things for you. We're going to make it really easy. It can be really hard to untangle yourself from that. It can be really hard to stop and ask questions. Is this really what the science is showing? Is this really the right thing for our children? I think anytime you have an under-resourced thing like schools, that when somebody presents you this whole solution, even if it may, you may need to be asking some more questions, then then it makes sense that you kind of go with that. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that the, the literacy gap actually widened during the pandemic, which, I mean, no surprises to me, but even prior to that, literacy was still a serious issue in Illinois. So, you know, were advocates pushing for the changes before? They were, but I think, and let's, you know, going back to those numbers that you talked about at the top of the show. So when it comes to third grade, just taking a minute to let it sink in that even before the pandemic, only one in three children in Illinois was reading on grade level according to the state test. And that after the pandemic, that's now one in four. Now that's across all children. When you start looking at, let's say, for example, black children, that is only one in 10. And I think that that's why when you hear groups talk about this being a civil rights issue, 
that that's where those that sort of information is is important to understand. And so, yes, advocates were, were talking about this. Yes, this was a conversation. But I think you are really seeing more momentum because it's now starting to happen. You have principals groups talking about it. Mm-hmm. You have parent advocacy. And now you have the state school board in Illinois convening a group at the same time the legislature is pushing through, oh, trying to push through a bill. Really sounding the alarm here, it sounds like. Right. Lawmakers are now pushing to change the reading curriculum. So I want to take a quick listen to State Representative uh, Laura Favor-Diaz, who supports the bill, is also a former CPS teacher. When we're talking about, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as a classroom teacher, um, I taught high school history, but I taught all of those things throughout my history content. I taught reading. I, I wasn't expecting to, to be quite honest, when I became a history teacher, but I found that that was needed. And then you're, you're using math, you're using writing. So when we talk about getting back to the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic, even in these classes that aren't, with the title is not reading, the title is not writing or arithmetic, all of those subjects are embedded in a um, in a rich curriculum, and I think that bill, this bill, will continue to support that. So, g- give us the details here, Cassie. What exactly do lawmakers want to change? Because I'm curious if it's a shift in the curriculum itself, or is it the method of instruction? It's a great question, and there is not consensus. So just to back up for a moment, when we started this legislative session, there were six literacy bills. Now there are only three that are still viable, and there's probably likely only one that is really gaining momentum. Now this bill, the one that has really gained momentum, is a bill that the only thing this bill ostensibly right now does is gives the state a deadline to come up with the plan. That is it. Everything else is really debatable. Wow. And so what they're, what lawmakers are trying to do right now is add an amendment to that bill. And so that amendment would go into a little bit more of the details. It would essentially lay out what this committee, this group should tackle. And mm-hmm. that would include things like universal literacy screeners for young learners to see things like dyslexia. Um, that would include talking about teacher training and, and what that looks like. The bill would also put a put more teeth essentially into the literacy component of a content test mm. that um, teacher prep candidates would take. And so when we're what we're talking about right now is really just setting a deadline. Any bill that gets close to the idea of even curriculum guidelines for districts to use gets really strong pushback. And the reason is this is a state where local control reigns supreme. Mm-hmm. People do not want to tell districts exactly what curriculum they should choose. And you write that this would be a shift away from the current method, which you refer to as balanced literacy, right, in your story. What's the difference between those approaches, balanced literacy and the evidence-based methods that advocates want? You know, for 200 years in this country, we've debated reading instruction, and the pendulum has swung back and forth. And what has happened is it's swung back and forth between something called whole language, which is teaching sight words, entire words, to phonics, very um, specific instruction that is letter and sound based. Balanced literacy was an attempt, I think, to try to bring in both kind of the best of both worlds, but it was really rooted in a love of books, showing children a love of reading, a love of books, a lot of um, guided reading with teachers, leveled readers. If you've seen those books come home, oh, my child's on level D or, you know, R. It's got a little circle in the top right that tells you what grade level. Anybody with a young child knows it. Um, And those books had really bright pictures and they had a lot of repetitive text. And so, it, it gave children this like sort of love of reading. But the the thing I think that that 
advocates of more research-based reading instruction are saying is that those books did not actually teach children the recipe that the brain needs to learn how to read. We're not born learning to read. We can learn. We can teach ourselves to walk. We can teach ourselves to, to talk. But we actually, the brain has to be taught how to read. Right. And that science now shows, because of advances in technology and what we can see with, with the brain and research, science can tell you how you build those pathways for children. And I think what's happening in this discussion is the advocates for a more evidence-based approach want to see more of those methods in the classroom. Mm-hmm. They're not saying, let's throw out the baby with the bathwater and not have bright, colorful books or have a love of reading. But I think the debate here is exactly how much of those methods and for how long do we want to keep in the classroom? And are those going to be fun for kids and teachers? Which is ultimately what we want, right? Uh, Though it's been largely supported, there has been some pushback, as you talked about, Cassie. I I want to play a little bit of sound from Representative Stephen Reich sharing his thoughts. I'm going to vote no, and not because of what I've heard here today, but I do believe in a the fact that we're seeing too much power being consolidated in too many administrative agencies in this state. And I think somewhere along the line, we have to draw the line at what can be done at the local level versus what is to be done at the state level. Too often, these types of things devolve themselves into mandates that end up falling on the on on the shoulders of local taxpayers and local citizens who feel out of control of their own uh, of the of the ability to control their own lives and, and in this case educate their own children. So essentially, the representative saying there that the school board's overreaching. Your thoughts? I think what the representative is saying there is that the lawmakers would be overreaching if they supported a bill or if they pushed forward a bill that set too strict of guidelines on what districts could choose. Mm. And so, you know, with what's happening right now, the school board, the state school board has convened basically a, a group to study, to come up with a plan and to try to bring in all of these different voices within the state. And the bill would essentially give them a deadline. And I think that what the representative was expressing yesterday was his concern that that plan could potentially, that would set the groundwork for the state going too far. Mm. And you do hear that. Um, I think the other pushback that you hear more broadly outside of the legislature is that there's just fatigue in in education with all of the mandates and all of the things that teachers are asked to do in a classroom. And so I think the thing that's going to be interesting to watch with this movement is how do you bring different groups of people to the table? How do you get teachers to um, to involved in training? How do you retrain in some cases, but how do you also work with them with the methods that they have? Teachers want to fundamentally do the right things for their kids. Oh, sure. Districts want to do the right things for their kids. How do you bring principals to the table? Because they have a lot of autonomy, especially in Chicago, mm-hmm. about what gets taught at their schools. How do you bring parents to the table? For the average parent, this is a really hard conversation to follow. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, everybody wants, we hope, what's best for kids. Mm-hmm. But it, it looks a little bit differently with how you have this conversation. For sure. And on the parent level, I mean, we just want to see the results in our child. Right. And it's really frustrating when you don't. And I think it's really frustrating for some parents to try to understand why all all of this is happening if their child is reading is generally reading okay. But I think what's really interesting when you talk to parents is that they don't connect sometimes. Say you have a fourth or fifth grader or sixth grader who hates school, hates going, is not interested. Sometimes they don't even connect that 
to maybe that child is actually a struggling reader. Mm-hmm. Maybe that child, because at that age, they've moved past trying to learn to read. They're, they're reading to comprehend. They're reading in science and social studies. And I think sometimes parents don't really quite, aren't able to connect the dots. Mm. That may not be the reason, but I think sometimes it is. And those kids are trying to do more without having the basic tools in their toolbox. And so I think we have to even broaden the conversation beyond elementary grades. This is not just a conversation for pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade parents. This is a conversation for parents throughout because we're actually seeing even in high school children that are really struggling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, and and still staying on the topic of parents, as you mentioned, they're trying to follow the bouncing ball as to what's happening, you know, as far as legislation goes. Do they have concerns about implementing these new methods? I think a lot of parents, and I don't want to speak on behalf of parents because certainly we're not a monolith, but I think a lot of parents send their children to school trusting that they're going to come home with, if nothing else, knowing how to read. And I think that there's a lot of trust there. And I think that if there are methods out there that we know from science, that we know from our improvements in our own research technology that can do that better, mm-hmm. that asking questions and being open to change at every level of education seems to be the thing that's incumbent upon all of us. Yeah. And this push for change that we're talking about, Cassie, it's not just limited to Illinois. Right. This is a national this is a national movement. In fact, you know, Illinois has been actually behind the curve here. You have all I believe 29 states at last count that have already put in some sort of either panel, either change. And I think it's really interesting to look and see what's happened, for example, in California. So in California, they had a council that was convened by Governor Gavin Newsom. They looked at exactly what they're going to try to do here in Illinois. They looked at how reading was taught in 330 districts in California. And you know what they found was that those districts were mostly using state recommended curricula that had been from a curriculum list from 2015, and that only one of those was aligned with the science of reading. So in that scenario, everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. This isn't malfeasance. This isn't, you know, they were taking the, yeah. the curriculum from the list, but the list itself was not aligned with the science of reading. And so I think that we just have to sort of accept that we need to ask some very basic questions, all of us, about how this happens. So what are you going to continue watching as the story develops, Cassie? I'm really interested, actually, right now in what's happening in England and in other countries, because this conversation has also been been happening there, and they've moved in some districts, some places there a little bit faster to really adopt standards. So what are we seeing? Are you going to see the results there? I think that that will be really interesting. I think the other thing that I've been interested in on this topic for a while is late stage intervention. And so last year, I believe I sat in a few sessions of a program that was for struggling teenage students. Mm -hmm. And all of these students had had some sort of interaction with the justice system and they had been given a reading screener Mm. and a surprising number of them had issues, either dyslexia or some sort of basic like reading issue. And so they were part of a training a, a training program that was using the very same curriculum that actually my children are now using mm. at their CPS school. And Interesting. the results were so transformative, so fascinating. And one teenager when I was there actually told me when I asked him, like, how does this feel? He actually got so angry. And he said... I'm so angry that I didn't have this so much earlier. Had to wait till he was a teenager to had to wait till he had an that. interaction with the justice system. And so I think that the when we think about the transformative power of literacy at every level, 
that it, it to me feels like a, a, just a really important conversation, no matter what lingo you're using. That's Cassie Walker-Burke, external editor for WBEZ. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you.